Welcome to Actions Antidotes, your antidote to the mindset that keeps you selling for less. I want to tell you about a story that I've both lived and heard countless times. This is a story of someone who starts a job and starts a job actually quite optimistic about it. They're excited to do something. They're excited to join whatever organization that they're joining. But then somehow over time, they become really jaded, usually by problematic relationship with their immediate supervisor, with their boss, or someone in a higher leadership position. And there's so many complicated reasons why that happens. But the story has happened so many times that it is definitely something that we need to address because I've seen so many people suffer through some sort of situation where there normally would be good productive workers, but as a result of whatever's going on above them, They just don't care and and sometimes become actively disengaged, which are the employees that are actually rooting against their own company, which happens uh, almost a third of the time. Quite terrible. And my guest today, Laura Baxter, is not only an opera singer and a book publisher, but she's also a uh, speaking and leadership coach. Laura, welcome to the program. Hi, thank you, Stephen. It's great to be here. So you have a lot going on. You have a lot of different endeavors, which is always wonderful. How do you manage all of that? How do you bring it all together? Good question. I was going to say, don't sleep much, but actually, that's okay. (laughs) Actually, actually get enough sleep. I think the the clue is that I really, I love what I do. And all of it, both the coaching people on their presentation or um, giving talks or also helping people with publishing their books or whatever, it has to do with helping people find their voice. So although it may seem like it's a lot of different uh, aspects of that process, it really comes together with just helping people get their voice out there, be it their physical voice with that kind of with presentation coachings, their ideas in a book or in a talk. It really has to do with finding their voice. And of course, singing opera, you're using your voice. Absolutely. Absolutely. I don't, I don't do opera anymore. I, I, that used to be my my life. Um, I do still do concerts though. And I wouldn't give that up. That's, uh, I love that. There's there's something, some depth with the, with music. So, yeah. And so do you think that's something that most people are looking for in this life as people try to think through, okay, what job do I want? What do I want to do even in my social circles, personal life, family life is people looking for a voice? Yes, I do actually. And it can be something relatively small or seemingly insignificant, just like wanting to have some recognition for what you've done in your job or being able to to share your ideas and your opinions on your job and your everyday life, or it can be on a larger stage. It can be really uh, somebody really wants to get an idea into the universe to change things on a larger scale. And so back to the story that I began this podcast on, the one that I've been in and seen so many times about someone who's really disillusioned by poor leadership, do you feel like that for that employee, for that person who's just so frustrated that it's distracting them from all the work they're trying to do and everything they were trying to have an impact on when they join the organization, it's an issue of that person losing their voice? Yeah, it is. And you and I've talked about this several times in a full book that I published. I've been co-author writing quite a few things on presentation and that kind of thing. But the very first full book that I published is dealing with divas and other difficult personalities, a mindful approach to improving relationships in your business or organization. I published that one first, or I wrote that one first in its entirety, because 
when I was working with my clients and it did not matter what topic, it could be a topic of, you know, they've got to give a talk. They've got a meeting where they're giving a presentation for their board, or it could be as simple as communication difficulties within their organization. The one thing I found that held people back the most more than anything else was difficult personalities. In other words, there was somebody in the room, even if we talk about stage fright, yeah, even with stage fright, most commonly they were like, oh, but so-and-so is going to be in the room and you know, what are they going to think if I make a mistake? And so it also often has to, has to do with individual people with whom we don't necessarily get along very well. You mentioned something early in the story you were describing. And, and as you said, it is incredibly common. There's a Gallup poll that comes out, I believe every year, every two years on employee engagement. Yep. And the last one that came out was 2023. And I believe I'll have to double check the numbers to be hundred percent exact, but depending on which country or which areas or which region, like the European Union or the U.S. or worldwide, yeah. engagement was only between like 13 and 19 percent. And that means the people who are engaged in the company, which means that they speak positively about their company and they like their job or they like working at that company, yeah. is less than 3 percent. And that that says a lot. And then you get into the actively disengaged and the just disengaged. The disengaged is the largest group. That's those are people who are not satisfied, but they're not actively work, actively working against the company. And then you've got the actively disengaged. Those are people who are actively speaking negatively about their company. And that's th- those numbers are just phenomenal. Well, and it has to do with leadership and communication and and personalities. Yeah, every time I see that Gallup survey, and I was actually just trying to look up what the latest one was, because I remember seeing like a 36% number for the US and seeing that number actually worse globally. Um, I always think about how much how much is being lost, uh, not only from a GDP perspective of, okay, well, if you were to take, say, let's just say it's a third, a third, and a third, just to, you know, for easy comprehension, right? So a third is employees are actively engaged, a third are actively disengaged, and another third are those kind of passive, those people, you know, and I think I think it is more than that. I think it's more common because I think the most common thing is like, uh, I got to go to work, but it gives me a good living. I got a comfortable house types of people. If we were to take, say, half the people in that category, make them actively engaged and take half the actively disengaged people and at least move them up to that neutral ground area, first of all, how much more productive every company would be, how much more could be produced from an economic standpoint, but also from a life standpoint, how many more people would be happy and how much more good energy would be around us in the world to the point where people would be trusting one another a bit more again, because they're in a more positive attitude. Like the whole system could be in a such better place if we just improve those numbers on people's jobs, because that's where people spend a good amount of their time, at least as of 2023. Yeah. I mean, if you take the third, 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 we spend at least a third of our lifetime, eight hours a day. That's not insignificant. Yeah. This also these numbers were sort of reinforced by the so-called after COVID, the so-called great resignation that people just realized, I just don't want to do it anymore. Yeah. And if they had been happy with the circumstances, with their colleagues, if there had been enough bonding there, then that there would not have been that kind of movement away from their previous job. It's a fascinating topic, and it really does show us how much need there is for strong leadership. And while we're on the topic of this, what happened after COVID, one thing that's really 
baffling me right now is that we had the great resignation. We have all these labor shortages that people are talking about. It's so hard to find people. And then all of a sudden, about a year or so ago, people start to get really, really authoritarian, I guess, with these return to office mandates. And I, for the life of me, can't figure out um, where that comes from. I get the idea that you need to spend some time in person and that sometimes just being at home at your computer, you don't connect with people as much in some scenarios. But like people are getting, I don't know, just they're just getting intense about it in a way that feels to me like it's a counterproductive method by which they're driving people away. I agree. I agree. The positive thing about COVID and allowing people to do home office is it really enabled a new type of, of flexibility to come in as sort of a standard that we've never had before, which really opens up a lot of doors. Now, I also understand fully, and I think we all understand fully, a company is paying a huge amount of money to keep up this building that they either purchased or they're renting for their business, and now it's standing there empty. I understand that. The other hand, if the solution is to force people to come back into that environment using the word intentionally the word force, that's not constructive in any way. If you're in incentivizing them in a way that's making them want to come back into that building. So we're having these meetings or we're having this brainstorming, you know, not every single day from nine to five, but there's a, a specific goal that is going to be reached by this. I think that most employees would be more than willing to do that. But as soon as it becomes, you will now get back to work in your office. It's fascinating. I don't know, during covid one of our TEDx speakers in Nuremberg had a talk on um, how much space was then available for, for example, that could have been converted into, for example, apartments or mm -hmm. into so living space because there's a shortage here in Germany, you know, that could really be used in a different capacity because it was working very well that people were staying at home for the, their home offices. We tend to go back into back into some sort of restricted thought pattern of black and white yeah. as opposed to so, yeah, now we're at home because of this. And now, now you've got to go back because it's now time to go back as opposed to really thinking about how can we use these spaces creatively? How can we, um, what is really the problem in that case, the problem is there's this building that's empty or the problem is maybe they're realizing that there's not as much innovation going on because you don't have those exchanges in that case, then explain that to the employees. We need you to be in this room doing this and you can, the rest of the time, you can be at home or however you want to work it. Um, but as you said, it ended up being in the communication much more go back to work right now. And I don't yeah. think any of us like to be told that. Yeah. No, it's just because I think a lot of us have had that scenario where at some previous job where you'd go into an office and you would still be taking phone calls with people in other cities and still be doing some things remote. And I even remember before the pandemic at a job asking myself that question, I would drive into an office and not really interact with the people, you know, that much. I would just kind of, and, and even our meetings would be happening over, you know, one of these video conferencing services. And I'd be like, well, why did I use this fuel? Why did I get up and get out of the house even when everything I'm doing at a cubicle or in an office is something I could have just been doing at home the same exact way. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Nobody should have the feeling that they're wasting time, especially not wasting time in the car, you know, just getting back and forth. That's, I think it's very much the responsibility of leaders in, organiz in an organization to be able to communicate very well what it is they 
what they need from their teams and what they would like. You know, mm-hmm. it's okay to say, I just would like to be with you all one day a week to just kind of see how we're all doing. Yeah. That's also acceptable as opposed to saying, you have to come here because you know, it's just, <laughs> yeah. they're just, you know, they're, they're just different ways of communicating things. Yeah. But it, interestingly enough with COVID though, and that's the other phenomenon that sort of happened at the same time is it really depends on your personality structure. There mm-hmm. were, I had clients that were absolutely unhappy before COVID because of stress or conflicts in their organization. And usually, again, I tend to get these because of dealing with divas and other difficult personalities, uh, these cases where there's some sort of conflict, some sort of uh, difficult situation. And then with COVID, when you've got your home offices and everybody's working remotely, those conflicts were gone. Even though they were still working with the same people, they didn't have this tight contact that they had before. So all of a sudden they were relaxed and happy, depending again on your personality structure. Others who then were very unhappy because all of a sudden they were very much alone in their mm-hmm. office at home. And so it's also the job of a leader to recognize the needs of their team players. I was on the faculty at Duke, on the voice faculty at Duke University, uh, back when Coach K was the, the basketball coach mm-hmm. and championships. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, <laughs> and he was known for his leadership skills. And I remember an mm-hmm. interview uh, sometime in the 90s, early 90s, I'm guessing, where he was asked, you know, what's the secret? And he said, you have to know which players need to be encouraged and which players need to be yelled at. In other words, we're, we're all motivated intrinsically or extrinsically where some of us are motivated from praise. You know, if you tell me I'm doing great, then I'll do even better to make you get more praise. And others are motivated by saying, no, you know, that that was wrong what you did. And then they wanted to make it right. So you have to kind of know your team players in every organization to be able to know how to communicate and see what they need and make sure that that need is being fulfilled. So back to the scenario about the the diva at work or whoever it is, the person that you can't really seem to get along with, uh, you know, what what generally can be done about that, right? Because one of the things you said is it's not necessarily this black and white, oh, that person's evil. It's oftentimes just a misunderstanding. Yeah, it's rarely black and white. First off, and you know this as well, if not better than I, it's much more expensive to fire someone and hire someone else than it is to somehow reconcile the situation that's there, especially if that team member is very talented. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing is when we hear the word diva, so I come from the opera world, so therefore it was a nice word, word to choose. But when we hear the word diva, we tend to think of people who are larger than life, you know, who really overwhelm everyone and, and kind of take over, come in and take control and very, very um, dominant. That's only one type of diva. A person who tends to be very dominant finds other dominant people rather normal. In other words, they think like them, they act like them. They, it's easier to find a find common ground. For a personality that's very dominant, the people that they find very difficult are more introverts that are, tend to be very plan. They, they tend to plan a lot. They need a lot of time to make a decision. They like processes more than, than just getting to the goal. That's a different way of thinking. And for a very dominant person who's a planner is much more, uh, they just think they're not cooperating. They ought to be able to make a decision, but they're not making a decision. But the planner is very, is, has, has ten, the tendency of being, uh, being a perfectionist. And so for them, they don't want to make a decision until they know they have the 100% the right answer. 
And so you've got these two different personalities going at it, and there are many, obviously many different variations on that. But that so for the, the very dominant person who comes in the room and, t- and owns the room, the quiet person is the diva. They're controlling the situation because they're not willing to sign off on this. Yeah. And of course, for the quiet person, the dominant person is more the diva. <laughs> so it's it's usually yeah. That said, the diva in our lives, the diva in quotes, yeah, is somebody who's very different than us. There's some sort of communication that's different than how we would communicate. And the goal is then to find a way to build a bridge to that person so that you can reach your goals. In an ideal situation, you can help them reach their goals. And certainly that the organizational goals are reached, whatever the project is they're working on or whatever. Does the nature of the relationship between the two people, whether they're two coworkers or whether one is a leader and one is a, you know, one is their boss essentially impact it? Does um, organizations that really kind of adhere to a really strict traditional hierarchical way of thinking, can that get in the way of fostering this reconciliation with the person, whoever is the person at the higher position, just thinking that the person that has a problem with them should just do what they say because that's how hierarchy works. Yeah, just shut up and do what they're told kind of thing. Yeah. In general, traditional hierarchical systems are not as effective, especially in today's world. And with that, I mean, also when you've got a lot of virtual teams and even before COVID, it's important to realize that 80% of businesses before COVID had some form of virtual teams. And so this is not a new phenomenon. It's just that more people are doing it now. Especially in that case, you need to have flatter hierarchies because somebody who is working remotely from you and where you're, where the home base is for the company, that person needs to be self-motivated. That person needs to be able to organize themselves. So you're talking about a much more flatter hierarchy. So alone, when we think of traditional hierarchies where you've got this person is responsible or has to, is responsible to this person, this person to this person, et cetera. In modern times, that's pretty slow. It's it's not nearly as effective. And there's a tendency, as you said, a very strong tendency to get into power plays and control issues that just don't need to happen. And with some of these workforce transformations, and when I think about transformation, I think of this kind of global one where people are moving away from that model and moving towards one where they're engaging services like yours, learning more about how to like be an effective leader, how to motivate people, how to find your voice, how to help the people you lead find their voices and stuff like that. Do you notice any kind of difference between what you observe when you come to the U.S. versus what you observe in Germany? Yeah. I mean, I work, my clients are pretty much worldwide. So I have clients in um, in Asia and in India, I have clients all over Europe, mm-hmm. as well as the US um, and Canada as well. I mean, the German culture specifically, the difficulties here that I would say the hierarchical system is a little bit stronger here than in the US. It used to be a lot stronger. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but that seems to be also kind of evening out a little bit. One of the biggest challenges in Germany is the culture itself has a very strong need for security. Mm-hmm. In other words, you don't really, uh, Germans are really good at perfecting things. So, and there's a very strong perfectionist tendency, but in the society kind of frowned upon to make a mistake in the U S we don't want to make mistakes either. And we do everything we can not to, but there's much more of a, just do it, just try it out. Let's see if it works or not attitude. And that doesn't happen in Germany. And that held Germany back 
I mean, one of the most obvious examples is in the automobile industry. You mm-hmm. think of Germany as being a leading nation in the automobile industry, but they were way behind when it came to hybrid cars and, and electric cars. They really had to play catch up, especially with, well, both with the Japanese and American market and or car manufacturers. And so, the, and the reason for that is they didn't want to take a bet on something that wasn't sure mm-hmm. because it could go wrong. And who's going to be blamed when it goes wrong, you know? Yeah. And that kind of mistake cult, what we call a mistake culture, how a company or how a corporate culture or an organizational culture handles mistakes is a huge issue in all of this. And, and in Germany, there's this strong need to be, to be perfect. Yeah. Yeah. And we have that kind of like California, Silicon Valley, stereotypically attitude of like, oh, just throw something up the wall, break something, we'll try it, which is like, one of the reasons I know different people have different feelings about Elon Musk, but you know, one of the reasons that California USA is where he went to to pursue all the things he wanted to pursue. It, it is, and and you know, you saw it also with even centuries ago, even with Thomas Edison, for example. Yeah, you just try something out. Like, let's take this. Does this light bulb work? No. Okay, throw it away. Try this. Yeah. One. I don't know how many hundreds <laughs> of times he did experiment, but yeah, and that's that's a very typical American attitude of just just try it and see if it works. And if it doesn't work, then we'll do it again. You know that kind of thing. And that does not. That is no. It's not yeah. German. <laughs> there are other European countries that would that, that that's closer to, but not Germany. You know, even India is much more careful than the U.S. They plan more than than we do in the U.S. So yeah. Is there any other parts of the world where you're seeing this type of culture emerge, you know, as you kind of like work with like companies all over Asia and Canada as well? In Asia, the hierarchies are still stronger than in Europe or certainly here in Germany and and in the U.S. And also one of the largest differences and challenges there is a feeling of collectiveness. So the whole decision making process in Asia is a much slower process depending, of course, which country, et cetera, Asia is also yeah. very large. In general, it's a much slower process even than in Germany. You know, if you're an American company, you can imagine that's a fast decision-making process in comparison to, to Germany. And again, other European countries are very on this, yeah. this aspect, but um, I know the German culture best. Americans tend to make very fast decisions and let's see what happens. Whereas here in Europe, it's a bit slower, a little more careful. Let's think about it. Let's discuss it for a while and then make a decision. That whole process is even slower in Asia. So there, you can mm. imagine there are just communication problems that can pop up everywhere. Yeah, for sure. And both sides, again, an American company wanting making a fast decision expects a fast decision from someone from other cultures and they don't get that decision, they're just stalling. They're just not cooperating. Or, you know, all these different different stories that we tell ourselves come up, you know, blaming them when it's just a, diff- a cultural difference with people, a personality difference. Culture difference across different countries can also show up across different organizations and even in any communication, like in any aspect of your life, right? And oftentimes when you think someone's being a jerk and you start getting heated and that's when you start going home, complaining to your spouse, complaining to your friends and your family, oh my God, this person's just making my life miserable, they're terrible. It's usually because they're like coming from like a different starting point about expectations that haven't really been communicated. Yeah, you just said a key word, expectations. And one of the most important things with every communication we do in everyday communication, as well as, you know, yeah. company or whatever, is to set the expectations, to express the expectations of each person involved 
person A says, you know, my expectations are this. And person B says, oh, okay, my expectations are this. And if, if you know what the expectations are, it's a wonderful start to being able to communicate very well. And one of the biggest mistakes you can make is to assume. I mean, yeah. forgive my French, but there, there's that old, you know, saying about assume is yep. assume you make a out of you and me. <laughs> That's very true when we make assumptions that I think I know what you you think or what you were intending. If I know, think I know what your intention is and I'm acting according to my assumption and not asking you, what is your intention? What is your expectation? Then there's going to be miscommunications that just happen. And it's just... That's unnecessary. That's the main thing. It's just not necessary. And so what do you recommend to your organizations that you work with that the leaders are the ones responsible for facilitating or making sure that these conversations about who's coming from where, who's assuming what happens so that we have a better understanding if there's any kind of other conflicts that go on? Yeah, 100%. 100%. And the larger organizations will often kind of shove that particular responsibility onto HR. Yeah. And that's just the wrong thing because then the HR, they come into a strange role of just being sort of the conflict managers as opposed to the leaders actually taking responsibility themselves. And yes, 100%. It, and it's not easy. I mean, the whole thing about leadership is you are the people manager at that point. Yeah. That's, if you're in a leadership position, the people, the, the how the organization, how the teams function together, that's your primary responsibility. And there are responsibilities to the outside world, but those whether or not you succeed there is dependent on how well you work with your teams. And so, and that has to do with communication in, in every aspect. I, yeah. One of the things that I observe about TED Talks, and uh, I go to the local TED Talks here in Denver quite a bit, and it's one of the things I've loved seeing and even love seeing online, is that their communication is so effective. I've been at so many presentations in many other capacities where you just get bored. And the thing I noticed about TED Talks is I would rarely get bored, even sometimes when it would be a topic that's like not necessarily one of my favorite topics, but just something like, oh, that's interesting. How much of it in this leadership role is it finding ways to, like what you do when you coach TED speakers, communicate in this effective way that's engaging, understanding vocal inflection, understanding, you know, how to cater the speech to your audience, all those things that you kind of bring up there? You're talking about two different things. There's a a leader will rarely, an executive, for example, will rarely rarely give a TEDx style talk unless they really are given this kind of 15 minute limit and and certain parameters. Although it's an excellent way to learn how to give a good talk, but your question about the voice and about inflection communication in the sense of what emotional, what emotions are being communicated through the voice and body language is so important. I just gave a TEDx talk in, in New Jersey at Cape May two weeks ago and should be about the time about right now. And people listening to this, it should be released at that point online. Uh, My talk was discovering the power of your voice and my main message. And with the TEDx and that's, I love the platform as well as you do. And the reason I love it is because people are giving literally the talk of their lifetime. And when asked, Mm -hmm. you know, what I would like to talk about, it's that your voice matters. And I mean, your physical voice matters. For example, in 2002, Professor Ambadi at Harvard University did research to know, she wanted to know why some surgeons are were sued 
multiple times for malpractice, even though they were found of no wrongdoing, and others were not. They were, had never been sued. She recorded the um, patient examinations of both groups. So these doctors had never been sued, doctors who had been sued multiple, multiple times. She found there was no difference between the content of what they're saying, there was no substantial difference in the length of time they were spending with patients, or no substantial difference between uh, their qualifications. What she found is that the color of the voices was the main difference, what we call the timbre. The doctors who had never been sued had a warmth in their voice that evoked trust in their patients. And the doctors who had been sued multiple times had a sharpness and edginess, a tightness in their voice that could either be interpreted as dominance or as insecurity. And that triggers something in their audience. So yeah, your voice matters. I observe people in many different endeavors, job interviews, leadership, you know, you talk about the doctors, dating, anything else that seem to be baffled as to why some people get completely different results than others with very, very similar tactics. And to the people who are more on the logic planning end, that could be a little bit confusing when someone said, well, wait a second, that person just did the same exact thing and everyone loved him and I just did this and nobody likes me. Are you saying that most likely it's how your voice is being understood by someone, whether it be the shortness of it, the tone, the pitch, all that type of stuff? It's a major factor. And so I should say the voice is always reflecting tensions in the body. So it's mm. not just we're hearing and we're experiencing those tensions in the voice. And usually there are other tensions that go with it. And because of the mirror neurons, most likely those around us are feeling the same tensions that we are actually emoting, if you will. A typical example that I use in my seminars is just if I breathe superficially and, and you're listening or, or looking at listening to and looking at me, I will automatically force you through my behavior to breathe superficially. Just because you will mirror my muscular tension that I have, you will automatically mirror it. It's what, what mammals do. And in doing so, I bring you into stress. If you'd like, I can show you a little example of that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, that would be perfect. Hi, Stephen. It's wonderful to be here with you on this talk. All I'm doing right now is breathing superficially, but you can hear it in my voice. There's this tightness. And also you, if you kind of, even the people just listening to this will probably also start mirroring my body right now, which is basically attention, which will bring people in distress. Compare that or notice how it feels in your body in comparison to, hi, Stephen. It's great to be here with you. And um, yeah. I'm Laura Baxter. I can go on and talk like this and notice the difference in your body. You can also hear the difference in my voice, but also feel the difference because as soon as I release and breathe deeply, as soon as I release and breathe deeply, then that allows you also to release and breathe deeply. And interestingly enough, very often we say if somebody's giving a presentation that they're speaking too quickly, usually they're not speaking too quickly. Usually they're breathing superficially. Because Interesting. Yeah. So I can, if I breathe superficially, I can speak as slowly as I like. It's always going to seem hectic, no matter what I do. And if I'm breathing deeply, I can speak as quickly as I like, and it won't seem hectic. These are things you need to, that we all need to understand about the voice and be able to control. That's like fascinating because I could feel it in myself. Like when you were breathing superficially, I, I felt like I was like, at a really hectic coffee shop in Midtown Manhattan again. 
And everyone was like, I get out of my way. I'm walking here. I got to get to work, you know? And then, you know, when you went back to normal breathing or deeper breathing, I felt like, okay, I can breathe. No one's, no one's telling me I'm too slow, even though it wasn't even the speed, but that slowness versus fastness kind of came through. And that's something that I had been told a lot being originally from New York, my natural tendency is to start talking faster, kind of like what I'm doing now. And people tell me, slow down, but it probably comes naturally if I just start breathing differently. Because the way you're breathing right now, you're breathing deeply. So you could actually speak pretty quickly and it wouldn't seem unnatural. It's predominantly, we tighten up the upper abs is what happens predominantly mm-hmm. with breathing. As soon as that happens, then we all come get into a seemingly a, a rather strong state of stress. The fun thing, this is a little off topic, but the fun yeah. thing is I, I come from the theater. There are no rules. Nothing is right and wrong. It all, everything we do decides or is decided by what emotion we want to evoke in our audience. So if I want to evoke stress, then I breathe superficially and it automatically causes stress. And then to release that stress, you just release that tension. So, you know, it's, it's fascinating. It really is. And that's just one aspect of what we work on when you work on the voice. And the more you work on it, the more possibilities there are as far as better communication. And if someone did want to work on their their voice, their leadership, uh, what would be the best way anyone listening could get a hold of you? Go to my website and send me an email. That's the absolute best way. And the website is? The website is voiceforleadership.com. So the four number. It's or voice you can write number out. four leadership.com. All right. right. Anyone out listening? And then one final question I wanted to ask you is that we've had a lot of um, new technology that is very distracting come about over the last couple of decades, particularly the the smartphones and a lot of these social media and addictive stuff. Is that interrupting the manner in which we're kind of picking up signals? Is that causing even more distress as far as how we're communicating with one another? And is there a way to kind of try to get around that to, you know, have more human conversations? Yes, it is. But and for a lot of different reasons. I think it's getting better, quite honestly, because I think we're all beginning to recognize. I know that about seven, eight, maybe even 10 years ago, when smartphones were relatively were new and people were fascinated by it, that at that point, I felt like at family gatherings or something, more people had their phones in their hands and were doing things. And lately, we just had a family gathering of the entire family in the States this past April, and I didn't, didn't feel like people were doing that anymore. I felt like we were really with each other. And I, and I've noticed that also with my son, who's Gen Z. Um, he actually, he went to a boarding school because he sang in a boys choir. And in that boarding school, the kids basically had a rule that when they would gather for a party or this is Germany, so they'd have a beer or whatever, even as a teenager, um, yeah. and they'd gather in the room, room to just be together. They actually would put their cell phones in a basket next to the door. And that's from them. No adults were around. They didn't allow everybody to have their cell phones with them just because they realized that they needed that personal communication. So the short answer is it has changed our lives in every way, especially in communication. My hope is that we continue to sort of realize how not only cell phones, but also how social media has changed communication, that we can begin to kind of counteract those, the mostly negative aspects of it. Um, So 
everything from the algorithms putting us in a social bubble that we're, we're really not as informed um, from that aspect to people giving rather negative comments anonymously online to just, you know, walking, my cell phone is not far away, it's walking around staring at the, at the cell phone, yeah. um, that we actually get away from that at some point and really get back to us. Yeah. And to be like, be there with the people in front of them. Absolutely. Exactly. Yeah. Well, Laura, thank you so much for joining us today on Actions Antidotes, um, for sharing all the different ways that we can kind of try to be more effective in our communication with one another, our leadership, as as well as a fascinating example of this superficial breathing. It's something I'm definitely going to be thinking quite a bit about as far as how my interactions with all the people around me go. And uh, I would also like to thank everyone uh, out there listening to Actions Antidotes, and hopefully uh, you're getting inspired to go out there and uh, be a better person, communicate better, and build the life that you truly want. Thank you so much, Stephen.